Well, as most of you know by now, in our study of the Shorter Catechism, we're doing a very large section, the whole uh, last half, you could say, of the larger, I mean, of the Shorter Catechism. It's actually more than half, but from question uh, 39 all the way to question 107, that it deals with the, how our duty to God. And we're on the first of two divisions within that division. Duty to God is broken into two parts. One is the moral law that God gave us when he created us. And we know that um, this is something that is unchangeable. It's, it's, it's the moral law, so like, it doesn't change that we're supposed to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, to love our neighbors, ourselves. That, that's unchanging, who God is, who we are. But then um, the other aspect of the law we'll get to quite a bit later on and that's um, the duty or I should say the duty that we have and that's the duty of um, believing the gospel of, of faith and obedience and then continuing in the means of grace that we might continue in the grace of God and, and grow uh, in the word sacraments and prayer and that will be what we get to later on a couple weeks ago we did look at the summary of the moral law or the summary of the Ten Commandments, which is to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbors, ourself. Today, we're moving on to a study of the, could say, the Ten Commandments themselves. Um, we saw that how they were summarized in the two great commandments last time, and then this week, we're going to be looking at the preface to the Ten Commandments. So you could say that we aren't quite getting into them yet. We're actually getting to that passage where the commandments are given. And the preface will be the focus of two questions that we'll do today. It is the focus of two questions, question 43 and 44. So we'll cover both of these today. We're going to do two because they really go quite together. So let's confess these two questions in unison. Uh, Question 43 What is the preface to the Ten Commandments? The preface to the Ten Commandments is in these words. I am the Lord thy God, which have brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. What doth the preface to the Ten Commandments teach us? The preface to the Ten Commandments teacheth us that because God is the Lord and our God and Redeemer, Therefore, we are bound to keep all his commandments. For our scripture reading, I'm going to simply read the the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20, with the preface, of course, in Exodus 20. And uh, so so please listen as I read these to you. Uh, Exodus chapter 20, beginning in verse 1. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before you, b- before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. 
Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work, you nor your son nor your daughter, nor your male servant, nor your female servant, nor your cattle, nor your stranger who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long upon the land which the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, nor his male servant, nor his female servant, nor his ox, nor his donkey, nor anything that is your neighbor's. Now all the people witnessed the thunderings and lightning flashes and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking. And when the people saw it, they trembled and stood afar off. Then they said to Moses, You speak with us, and we will hear. But let not God speak with us, lest we die. And Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you, and that his fear may be before you, so that you may not sin. So the people stood afar off, but Moses drew near the thick darkness where God was. May the Lord bless the reading of his holy and infallible word. You can see here in this reading how the Lord in giving the Ten Commandments to, to us, to his church in all, all ages, when he gave them this, this time, it was for all ages, um, how he began by introducing himself, which is important. We have to know who he is who gives us the commandments. He said, I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Remember that God has only one church through the ages. And this bringing us out of Egypt and giving us the Ten Commandments was a crucial time for his within his redemptive plan. This is a huge stage in the outworking of his plan to save us from our sin that eventually saw him send his only son to die on the cross for us, and then to rise for our justification, to take his throne, and to gather the nations into his church. When he gave us his commandments, when he gave them to us in written form, he made it clear that these commandments were from him by giving us this preface. They were issued with his full authority. It wasn't just from Moses or someone. He introduced himself as the Lord who is our God and our Redeemer, making it clear that these commandments are for us if we are redeemed, too. Because he said, I am the Lord and your God and your Redeemer. Certainly, as a summary of God's moral law, they apply to every human being. Do they not? Because it's an unchanging moral law. But they were given especially for the benefit of his people, of his church, the object of his redemptive grace. This being so, these commandments are for us who belong to Jesus Christ. They are especially given to us. They are a summary of God's moral law that we need, especially as God's people, because being fallen, we have muddled up morality and we need to have presented to us in a clear way. It's amazing that we should need to be told these things because before we fell, before we became corrupt, we didn't need to be told these things. They're obvious. 
The law was not made, the Bible says, for a righteous man. A righteous man has the written law already in his heart. But this written law is made for sinners. We have to have the ABCs spelled out. You know, that's what it is. Don't worship God, other gods. Of course not. Don't make idols of God. Of course not. Don't profane his name. Keep the Sabbath that he set apart as a holy day holy. Honor your parents. Don't murder each other. And so on. You know, do we really need to be told? Yes, in fact, we do. And so in presenting this summary to us, God reminds us of who he is and of what his relationship is to us as a way to encourage us to keep these commandments. We need all the help that we can get. And when we see who he is, consider what he has done for us, then it's a great aid to us in our obedience. Gives us a heart for it. As I preach to you this afternoon about this preface, I want to admonish you to do more than look at how, in theory, a preface like this can help. I want you to be moved by God's holy word to a more careful, more faithful, more earnest observance of God's commandments. That's what this preface is about. Seeing who it is that has given us these commandments changes the way we look at them all. That's what it's meant to do. So this sermon is aimed at bringing this about by God's grace. So first of all, seeing that it is the Lord who gives you these commandments, be all the more earnest to obey them. He begins that way. I am the Lord. Very clear. It's not as though Moses or some other man just thought these commandments up. This was the Lord himself. We have already seen how he presented himself in chapter 19. As a holy God who is talking with the people that had with people that had defiled themselves by sin. That was how he approached them, people that were defiled and unclean. As a holy God who is a consuming fire to sinners that would dare to come before him without atoning sacrifice, without being covered by the blood of the covenant. There was nothing trivial at all in what we saw of coming before the Lord. Hebrews tells us that even Moses trembled when he saw the glorious display of God. Sin has made the human race an object of God's wrath, but for his redeeming grace, which changes everything. We should never make his grace to be some kind of of tolerance for sin. When we see that it is the Lord who comes to us, it's nothing of the kind of a of a kind of a tolerance for sin. It's the Passover Israel had just been shown before these commandments were given that the only reason their firstborn sons did not die is because a lamb was offered in the place of their firstborn sons. It wasn't like, well, I don't I'm not going to punish your firstborn sons just because I'm kind of lenient with you. No. And someone else has to be punished. The, and the lamb, of course, represents, represents Christ. They weren't better than the Egyptians, or it wasn't that God had decided that he would just forget about their guilt. It was a substitute was provided to die in their place 
of their firstborn sons. And the firstborn son represented, of course, the whole family. So by saying, I am the Lord, he reminds them that he is Yahweh. That's the word Lord that's used here. Whenever you have Lord written in all capital letters in your English Bibles, that's what it refers to as that glorious covenant name, Yahweh. Lord is a substitute word that the Jews used because they were um, uncomfortable with pronouncing the holy name of God lest they would use his name carelessly. And it is a fitting substitute because the name Yahweh puts us, uh, points us to his authority as Lord over all things. Yahweh is the name that refers to him as Lord of all. He had just demonstrated what it meant for him to be Lord in his dealing with the Egyptians. Do you remember when Moses told Pharaoh, he went to Pharaoh and he said, Yahweh, Lord Yahweh has said, let my people go. What did Pharaoh say? Who is the Lord that I should obey him? You hear people say that, talk that way. Why should I do that? It was something that God, who is the Lord that I should obey? Why should I be concerned about him? Over the course of the next few weeks, Pharaoh found out. He found out the hard way that God had all authority. The plagues were such that they showed the superiority of Yahweh, the Lord, over all of Egypt's gods and over Pharaoh himself. The Lord showed that no one can challenge his authority, not the Pharaoh of Egypt, not anyone. He does whatever he pleases in heaven and in earth. And no one can stop him or say to him, why are you doing that? Now I wonder, does that really get through to you? When you think about people that maybe are in authority and that you might tremble before, does it really get through to you? That Yahweh is over that. It doesn't matter the most powerful person in the world that can decide who lives or dies as far as he's concerned. Pharaoh, um, he, he's helpless before Yahweh. See, his judgments are final and his decisions cannot be overturned. His work cannot be hindered by any God or any man. Both Egypt and God's people learned through the plagues that he was the Lord. It says that over and over again. In order that they might know that I am the Lord. That was what was echoed again and again during the time that Moses was in Egypt. So the name Yahweh is a name of authority of one that should be obeyed because he's the highest authority. If Pharaoh tells you something, you wouldn't say, oh, I don't think so. So if God tells you something, how much less should you say, oh, I don't think so? The name Yahweh itself carries a powerful meaning. The very name. You know how names have meanings. Well, this name means I am. It was a name that was revealed to Moses as he was going to Egypt. The burning bush in Exodus 3. When God first called Moses, he explained, I am Yahweh. And that, that name means I am who I am or I am that I am. It conveys the idea that God is being, he has being in himself. We have our being as creatures from him, but he is uncreated. He simply is. I am. He simply exists. 
No one supports him. No one needs to support him. No one can support him or uphold him. No one made him. He is what he is in himself. He exists from all eternity in one God in three persons. God blessed forever and ever. Amen. Everything that is here is here because he chose to bring it into being. Nothing was made that he did not make. That's his authority. He is the foundation of all being. He gave being to us to the, into the universe when he created or he, he, he put us in the universe that he created. He alone sustains our being. In him we live and move and have our being, it says in Acts 17, 28. Even the very strength that you have and the very words that you have in your vocabulary with which you speak, even thinking itself is entirely from him and dependent upon him. When we use our strength and our minds to war against God, we're using the very strength that he has given us to fight against him. He is giving men the very breath that they use when they spew blasphemies against him. He can turn it off whenever he pleases. He can snuff them out. If he had not given them the gift of language and understanding, they would not be able to express their arguments about why they don't believe in him. If he had not given them their little fists to shake at him, they would have nothing to shake at him. What a silly thing it is when you use moral arguments against Yahweh, who is the foundation of all morality. Morality doesn't originate from us. It originates from him, the creator. The only reason we have a sense of morality is because he created us with such a sense. We pervert it and then we use it to argue against God's morality. That's very, very foolish. Now, to put it very bluntly, it is just plain foolish to obey him who is or or not to obey him who is Yahweh when he speaks commandments to us. This is what the Bible means when it says that the fear of the Lord Yahweh is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It means that it's foolish not to obey the one who is the self-existing one. Wisdom, of course, is when you do things so that they'll turn out well. If a person has wisdom, he makes decisions and takes actions that turn out well. A wise person knows how to do things that they might come out right. A wise mechanic, for example, does what is needed to fix your car. A wise husband treats his wife in a way that will build up their relationship rather than tear it down. Opposing the one who holds your very life and your eternal happiness in, your, in his hands is not a wise thing to do. Isn't that obvious? Wisdom begins with fearing him. Now let's talk about fear. What is this fear? Will you fear whatever you think has the authority or the influence to make things turn out well or to turn out ill for you? A child fears a bully if the child thinks that bully is able to cause them harm. You fear a ruler who has the power to impose fines on you or to bring his armies to imprison you or to torture you or whatever it might be. A student fears 
a test at school that will decide whether they pass or fail. Uh, they, they have a fear of that because it will affect their life, their outcome. But what will affect us more than anything else? Settle it now that Yahweh has authority to bless you forever and to bring, or to bring you to misery forever. In him alone is the ultimate power of blessing and cursing. As Pharaoh learned, we, can, we cannot resist him. He is Lord. Everybody in Egypt learned that. If you are wise, you will not try to resist him. You will embrace him. And if Yahweh has expressed his will for us in the Ten Commandments, should you not earnestly obey them? He has graciously given us these commandments as a refresher of what we should have known and of what we should have been doing all along. He gave them to us as a mercy to help us when he restores us to be his people, to set us off in the right direction again in ways that please him. If you know that this is his will, then do it. He is the Lord. Your whole destiny is in his hands. His wisdom is inscrutable. There is no place for questioning what he has commanded. If you don't see why he has commanded something, you are the one who is mistaken. He is the Lord. His authority is supreme. You have no right or no authority by which you can challenge him and what he has decreed for you. <clears throat> he knows what is good, what is lovely, what is righteous for his creatures. It is the highest folly, arrogance, and wickedness for you to set aside what Yahweh has commanded or to take it to yourself to, um, to revise it. It's the very thing that brought about the fall of our first parents. He is the Lord. He is to be obeyed, absolutely and without question. The fact that we resist is proof that we are wicked and fallen. Yahweh has spoken. <coughs> Surely we ought to obey him. What else do we find in the preface to stimulate our obedience? Well, the next thing is a very marvelous thing. I guess that was pretty marvelous too, wasn't it? But uh, we're told that Yahweh who commands is Yahweh our God. He's the Lord, our God. That's very significant. There is a sense, of course, in which God is everyone's God. Of course he is. As we just saw as Lord, he is the self-existing one who created and upholds everything by the word of his power. All people are in his hands. They would not be, they could not continue if he didn't uphold them. So in that sense, God is the God of everyone without exception. But when he says here that he is our God, he is speaking about a special relationship that he established with his people, his chosen people. Remember that when Adam rebelled, he rejected God as his God. When he did that, he spoke for the entire human race and we fell out of relationship with God as our God. God was no longer our God. The outcome is that the world is very confused about God because sin has blinded us. We don't know him as God and he is not our God unless he 
restores that relationship with us. We do not serve him as God, worship him as God, trust him as God, know him as God, or obey him as God. But in his great mercy, he came to Abraham to establish his covenant with him. And that in that covenant, he said in Genesis 17, 1, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you in their generation for an everlasting covenant. You know the next words. To be God to you and your descendants after you. This was the promise of a fully restored relationship of God with his creature that he would establish with Abraham and his seed. The Bible says that if we are in Jesus Christ, then we're heirs of the promise that was made to Abraham. That means in Jesus Christ, we have God as our God. Now think about what it means to have Yahweh as your God. What does he mean when he says that he is our God? What does that mean? What well, means that your relationship with him as human to God is what the relationship of, what, uh, of a human to God ought to be. Now, if your dog runs away from you and is taken in by another person, then you no longer have a right relationship with your dog as a dog to a master because the dog has a new master. He doesn't come to you for his food and water and he no longer protects you or your property keeps you company, greets you, obeys you. None of those things. Your relationship is broken. He's not your dog. He's doing that to someone else now. But if your relationship is restored, you found your dog and you have brought him home again. Now he is your dog. Now your relationship with him is what a relationship between a dog and a master ought to be. You begin to live again as dog and master. Now, think through this with me. In Adam, we broke our relationship with God by disobedience. We became independent from God by choosing to do our own will as if we were God instead of obeying him as God. We did not want him to tell us what to do. So we ceased to live in the kind of relationship that a person ought to have with his God. Now we were doing our own will or the will of Satan, as it were, and God was no longer our God. But when your relationship with God is restored, he brings you back to live in a proper relationship to him. To live as a human being ought to live before Yahweh who made him. That's the kind of relationship that God promises to restore to us in his covenant. Promise when he says that he will be our God and that we shall be his people. It brings us back to a right relationship. And just what does this right relationship look like that God restores to us? Where we are brought back to a relationship where we obey him. We serve him as God. We worship him as God. We depend on him as God. We do what he tells us to do because he is our God. People get all muddled up about works and the place that they have in a believer's life. But you don't need to be muddled up <laughs> about works in the place that they have in a believer's life. We're not saved by works or by our obedience. Of course not. How could we be? We have much sin. 
God is holy. We've sinned against him and he must secure our pardon for the forgiveness of our sins. How could we dream of ever being made righteous by our own works? He is holy. What offering could we bring? What tears could we shed when we have wickedly rejected him? There's no amends for that. He has to deal with that. And we will talk about how he dealt with our sin and guilt in just a few minutes. So we're not saved by works, by obeying God again. But we are saved to do good works. That's not so complicated, is it? We're not saved by works, of course not, but saved to do good works. We're brought back into a relationship again that we're supposed to have where we obey him as our God. The idea that a person can be saved and not restored to a commandment-keeping life is absurd. How is it that a person is saved if he still has a broken relationship with God? He's still serving another master. So we need to be clear about these things. We're not saved by works, but neither are we saved without them. So you see that both the notion that we are saved by works as well as the notion that we are saved without being restored to do good works are absurd. And that's what the Ten Commandments, that's that's where the Ten Commandments come into the picture. God gives them to us when He takes us to be His people. He gave them to us when He brought us out of Egypt, that we might serve Him again as our God. We needed to know how. He gave them to us because being His people means that we live in a relationship to Him as our God. And living in relationship with Him as our God means that we obey Him. Paul tells us in Romans 6 that you can tell who your master is by looking at whose orders you obey. Verse Romans 6.16, he says, Do you not know that the one to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey, you are that one's slaves whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness? Remember when we looked at that? And I told you that uh, if you're a slave of a fisherman, People can tell because you're on the fishing boat doing what the fisherman tells you to do. If you get a new master, you become a slave to the farmer, then they can tell because now you're on the farm, you're not on the fishing boat anymore, you're not doing what the fisherman says, you're doing what the farmer tells you to do. If God is your God, people can tell because now you're serving Him. If someone says, oh, I'm a, I'm a Christian and they're not obeying God, then it's an indication that they're not a Christian. It's, it's, it's pretty simple. What business do you have presenting yourself to a master that's not your master? You know, if it's not your God. He is your God. You belong to Him now. And therefore, you're to have no other gods before Him. Why would you worship Baal if God is your God? We are to, you are to worship him as he directs, not in the way that you choose or in a way that the nations worship their God. Why? Because he's your God. You're to honor his name and not profane it. Why? Because he is your God. You're to keep the Sabbath that he appointed as holy. Because he's your God who appointed it. You are to honor those who are put over you in authority. God is your God and he put them over you. You are not to murder or commit adultery or steal or lie. 
You're not to covet what God has given to your neighbor. Why? Because God is your God. He's the one that has distributed things the way he has. It is a beautiful thing to have God as your God again and to have him say to us that he is our God. How it should compel you to live according to his will. This is another incentive, you see. The first incentive, he's the Lord of all. He's the self-existing one, the I am. Now the second incentive, he is your God. So it should compel you to live according to his will, to obey these commandments that he has given you. You belong to him. You're no longer serving self or Satan. You're serving God now. He is the one you are set out to set out to obey each day. So we've seen two, these two great incentives. Now the third component in the preface to the uh, Ten Commandments that draws us into earnest obedience is the declaration that God has redeemed us. Like it says in the Catechism, He is the Lord and our God. And then the third one, our Redeemer. You see it in Exodus 20, verse 2. How he declares that he is the Lord our God who brought us out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Now most of you know the story here. How Israel was in Egypt serving as slaves for over two centuries under cruel and oppressive bondage. They were in Egypt longer than that, but they were serving as slaves for a couple of centuries. But then the Lord came to fetch his people out. We have already talked about how he showed Pharaoh that he was Lord with the plagues that he delivered uh, to Egypt and that he used to deliver us out of Egypt. But what did this mean for his people? It was not just that they were no longer under the cruel bondage of the Egyptians. It was that, but not just that. It meant that they were free to worship God now, to serve God. He redeemed them out of Egypt so they could serve him. And what way did he, he give them? And that's why he gave them the Ten Commandments at this time. They had been redeemed to be his people. He didn't deliver them to be somebody else's people. He delivered them to be his people. Redemption from Egypt was only the beginning of God's redemptive work, though. He was, he, he was just setting the stage for what he was yet to do for them, for what he had promised and purposed to do to redeem them. You know all about that. He has openly revealed his salvation in the sight of the nations. We have the privilege of living at this time in history when we can look back and see what he did to redeem his people. He sent Jesus Christ with a twofold mission to set us free that we might be God's people. First, to free us from bondage to Satan. It was not just the bondage of Egypt, you see, but Satan had brought us into bondage to sin so that we could not serve God. We're in bondage. And Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil so that we could be set free to serve God instead of the devil. Now we should not talk then as Christians as if we are still in bondage. We have been set free. Jesus purges us of our rebellion by giving us the Holy Spirit who comes to us with power to give us new life. New life as servants to God. 
He takes away the stony, stubborn heart and he gives you a heart of flesh that responds to God. He redeemed you from the power of Satan. That is the first way he redeems us to live for God. If Israel is still in Egypt, to use the illustration, doing work for Pharaoh, then they weren't doing what God was telling them to do in their land. He brought them out in order to bring them in. Okay, so that's the first way that he redeems us to live for God. But secondly, Jesus came to secure for us complete atonement for our sins. He came as God's ultimate and final high priest to offer the sacrifice that could truly atone for our sins and could truly secure our pardon. All other priests were mere shadows of him. He is our great redeemer. And you know that he, what he offered as our high priest, don't you? What did he offer when he came as a priest to cleanse us from our sins? He offered himself. The very Son of God presented himself as a sacrifice that was without blemish in order that he might be punished for our sins. He went to the cross where he was cursed for our sake. It was there that he was forsaken by the Father for our sake. He took our condemnation in order to free us from condemnation so that we could serve God again. He redeemed us to set us free from guilt and eternal damnation that we might serve God forever. There is no love like this love. With such redemption as this, how can we do anything else but give ourselves wholeheartedly into his service? That he has redeemed us gives us hope. Why? It means that we can obey where before we could not obey. He has broken the power of sin so that it does not have dominion over us and not only that but we are fully pardoned so that we can start fresh each day knowing that our sins are not held against us we are free to serve the lord forever and we have his commandments so do them brothers and sisters do what god says the lord your god has redeemed you to be his people you are free now to serve And are there those here who are not serving him? Well, let me tell you that what's wrong with you if that's so is that you have not been redeemed to serve him. You are yet to be converted. Let me tell you what you must do. You must come to him with your sin. Don't play games and pretend that God is not there. Come to Jesus, the Redeemer, with your sin and cast yourself upon him. For mercy is the only one who can redeem you, who can save you. Ask him to redeem you and he will. He promises that if you come to him in faith, if you put it all in his hands, he will deliver you. He will save you. How can you not wholeheartedly obey him when he himself has promised to deliver you from bondage? It's not about your strength. It's about his strength who does the redeeming. But that's not the only way that redemption draws you to wholehearted obedience. Secondly, the great love shown in his redeeming us constrains us to serve him. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul describes himself as a crazy man. 
Why? On account of this great love that he has received from God. It's it's had such an impact on him that he's prepared to do anything for God. Listen to what he says in 2 Corinthians 5.13. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. Or if we are of unsound mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ compels us because we judge thus that if one died for all, then all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. Seeing then the great love of Christ, it propelled this man, the Apostle Paul, along so that he seemed to be beside himself. He put himself in constant danger in his service to the Lord and other people. And he did it again and again. A lot of people will put themselves in danger once and then they say, oh, well, I did this for the Lord. And then they retire and they tell everybody about what happened. Paul kept going back again. You know, this would be like, um, you know, we read the story about Andrew Brunson in, in Turkey. It would be like if he just headed right off to another country that was where the same thing happened again. And then he went to another one and another one and another one and another one. It's, it's amazing how Paul just again and again and again. Why? He was a crazy man because the love of Christ constrained him. He was beside himself. Are you like that? Think deeply on Christ's great love and his redemptive work for you. He who knew no sin became sin for you, that you might become the righteousness of God in him. Tis a cold heart that is not stirred to obedience when you hear what Christ has done. He did this to reconcile you to God. Let this great love warm your cold heart. Let it stir the embers of that heart so that they burn with a fervent heat for the Lord and for his people. As we saw last week, the sum of these commandments is to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbor as ourselves. Can you do less than that whenever you consider what our Jesus has done to redeem us? The love of Christ constrains us. We are left no choice in the face of grace. The one who gave you these commandments is none other than the Lord your God, who redeemed you that you might serve him. He is the Lord. He is our God. He is our Redeemer. You have every incentive and every help. He has redeemed you, so get on with service to Him. It's not your works, it's not your strength. You come to serve by His grace as our Lord, our God, and our Redeemer. Please stand and let's call on His name. Lord, we thank you for this preface that you attached to the Ten Commandments. You didn't just come with a moral law to a people who are disconnected from you and tell them, here's what you've got to do. But rather, Lord, you came to your people after you had redeemed them, after you had brought them out of bondage, after you had declared yourself to be their God, after you had revealed yourself as the Lord to them, They knew who you were when you came to them with your commandments. They had seen your hand in bringing destruction on Egypt and in bringing them out of Egypt and in making yourself known as their God. And we see, Lord, how this helps us so much to know who you are. It helps us to obey, to know what you have done for us, the grace that you have shown to us in order that we might obey. 
to know that you are God and that you are our God. Father, we pray that we would have this true relationship with you as your people. Father, that we would be among those who have been redeemed, that we would come to you for that redemption, for you have told us that anyone that comes will not be cast out. We know that there are many people that have no interest in the redemption that is in Christ. They will never find it unless they change, unless you change them. But Father, we thank you that you have given us a desire to be your people and that we have been able to come to you and to receive life from you. And I pray that we would go forth in your name, bringing honor and glory to you by the grace that you give us to keep your commandments. Oh, Father, we know that we come so short. We, we fall short every day. But we thank you that the blood of Jesus continually cleanses us from all of our sin. And we pray that more and more that we would walk in obedience to you, that there would be a deeper and fuller and richer obedience and a greater love to you and to our neighbor. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now receive the blessing of the Lord our God. Blessed be the Lord who has not who has given rest to his people according to all that he promised. There has not failed one word of all his good promise which he promised. May the Lord our God be with you as he was with our fathers. May he not leave you nor forsake you, that he may incline your hearts to himself, to walk in all his ways and to keep his commandments and his statutes and his judgments which he commanded our fathers. Amen. Amen.